Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the College Futures Foundation, which envisions a California where post-secondary education advances equity and unlocks upward mobility now and for generations to come. To learn more, visit collegefutures.org. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us online at letshearitcast.com. You can find us on LinkedIn and, yes, even on Instagram. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. Welcome in. It's another edition of Let's Hear It. You found us. We found you. We found each other. Mr. Brown, welcome. Findings. As long findings. As, as long as we don't say learnings. I think findings are okay. We're going to say findings. And we're going to say thank you to today's guest and thank you to you for surfacing this conversation and, uh, and, uh, you know, let's, let's step on it. Let's get there and this? step on it. Yeah. How about Ed Begley Jr.? Wow. I, I bet you when folks were thinking, oh, I wonder who's going to be on the podcast today. Maybe it'll be, I don't know, some foundation president. Nobody thought it was going to be Dr. Ehrlich from St. <laughs> Elsewhere. I'm guessing this is my, this is my surmise. Well, we're all famous by association because clearly you and Mr. Begley Jr., um, Go way back, as you've said. And in fact, you <laughs> dated yourself. You dated us. You dated the world when you described how far back you go. But set this up because set this up, set this up. We we all, all get right. to bask in the glory of real fame and celebrity today. So it's <laughs> awesome. It's great. It's great to have it. It is possible that some of our listeners are not aware of the fact that I am a has-been. <laughs> now they know. Many, 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 many years ago, uh, when I was an actor, I did a movie with Ed Begley. I'm not telling anybody what it is. You're going to have to find out for yourself. <laughs> it's not that hard. They have this amazing research device that almost everybody can avail themselves of. But uh, we worked together a long time. He was a hilariously funny, phenomenally generous, incredibly kind and sweet, wonderful person to work with. And... As we were kind of sitting around one day, I, I saw that Ed had a book out, and it had just occurred to me that he is one of our, I would say, foremost celebrity environmental advocates. And I yeah. thought it might make a fun conversation to talk about his advocacy, how he thinks about it, how he communicates. And I would say for folks out there thinking about how do we tap into kind of legitimate, intelligent, well-spoken, good-time celebrity to advance our causes. And let's call out to the Temple of Tranquility and step on it, exclamation point, <laughs> uh, Ed's a memoir. And, you know, Ed's at this really interesting point in his career. He's, I think, too young to be writing a memoir, but actually the exact perfect age to be writing a memoir because he's got clearly a lot of incredible stories to draw on. And man, there's some name drops. There's some great Woo! name drops in this interview. Um, but he's also really doing a lot and super involved, including just a week ago, being at the Environmental Media Association Awards with his wife, his daughter, giving and receiving awards. And, his, and he's been, of as many things he's done, he's been a longstanding participant in the Environmental Media Association. So this is an incredible conversation. Eric, man, we're, we're, let's all let's all rub shoulders with some celebrity. Let's listen to Ed Begley Jr. and let's hear it. And then we'll come back and talk. To the temple of interviews and step on it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is the one and only Ed Begley Jr. Now, you may know Ed from St. Elsewhere and those great Christopher Guest movies, Spinal Tap, Best in Show. I like that one. Some of us secretly loved uh, Transylvania 65,000. Uh, but my guess is though, almost everybody who thinks about Ed Begley Jr. thinks about his environmental activism. Also, by the way, Ed is the author of a new memoir called To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It, which I really enjoyed. And I kind of recommend that you listen to it because Ed is the narrator and who knows better how to narrate Ed's story than Ed. And as it happens, Ed and I go way back. So, Ed, I'm just so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so very much for coming and talking to us. We go back like Similac. We've been known each other since you were a very young person. I've known you a long time, Eric, and it was a delight to hear from you, by the way. <laughs> so it's been, what, 44 years? 
Exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. We've been in communication a few times over the years, and I love hearing from you and seeing you. So right back at you, pal. You're doing important work, and thank you. Well, thank you, Ed. And let's just jump right in. I think you're known as Hollywood's probably most ardent and enthusiastic environmentalist. Can can you point to a moment when you kind of realized you were different from the other children? Yeah, it started in 1970 with the first Earth Day, you know. I heard they were going to do something to honor the Earth and all the many natural systems that we depend on, to value them and revere them and celebrate them. So I took part in that. But then I also was smart enough for once in my life to ask them what they're going to do the other 364 days. I know this is a wonderful day, April 22nd. What are we doing the 23rd and the 24th and going forward? I said, well, we're going to clean up the air. We're going to clean up the water. I went, okay, sign me the hell up. Because <laughs> I lived in LA at that point, did most of my life. And I knew the horrible choking smog that I dealt with every day. I'm not an asthmatic, Eric, but I breathe like this a lot of my young life, just trying to sit on a little bench outside school because you couldn't go outside and play. But to just sit there, you know, you had trouble breathing. It hurt your lungs to breathe. It was very, very bad. You couldn't see the mountains in any direction. It was a valley, the San Fernando Valley. You couldn't see any of the mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains, the Simi Hills, the Verdugo Hills. You couldn't see any of it because there was smog that was killing us. So they said, we're going to clean up the air. I also knew that they said they're going to clean up the water. I knew we needed help in that area too because I'd see the horrible Santa Barbara oil spill, what that did off the Southern California coast, and that was terrible. And further away from us was the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland catching fire. I went, hold on, hold on. If rivers are catching fire because there's so much toxic chemistry sitting on the surface of the water, we're in big trouble. That's a sign. That's like an omen of the apocalypse. You know, it's a <laughs> sign of bad things when rivers catch fire. It conjures up the river Styx or something or Hades. So I set about doing stuff. And I was a broken, struggling actor, so I couldn't afford any big ticket items. But I did what I could. And we saw a difference, for, not for me, but from what everybody did together. We saw a difference. Even though we have four times the cars in LA for 1970 and millions more people, we have a fraction of the smog. We've done that. We've all done that together. So we got to remember the good news too, Eric. When we talk about our challenges, we're going to celebrate our successes. Well, LA, I mean, it really is unbelievably different. And in your lifetime, you've seen it from your youngest years, oh, yeah. smoggy, smoggy to what it is now. Most now, there's still people that live near the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. I understand people near the freeway interchanges, people near those fulfillment centers. We're all getting our Amazon stuff delivered to our house. There's horrible diesel pollution near there. They're getting the worst of it, these people. We got to take care of them. We're not done. We got work to do. And then we can go on and do a lot more because the stuff we're doing to combat this pollution in LA and other Houston areas, Bakersfield areas, it's going to help with climate change. You get a twofer. So you get and, a three for hold on. You got a three for I just realized those fur. are going to cut down on uh, imported oil. You got a three for sorry. Go ahead. So yeah, you're a struggling actor, and yet you were still you were using whatever platform you had even way back then to talk about the environment. What was that like? Were you just considered like the crazy person in the room, or totally a crazy person in the room? Because I wasn't at all famous. I did a couple of room two. I did one at that point, 1970. No, I guess I'd done about five or six room two twenty twos. I did a show uh, called My Three Sons. I did an episode of Maddox. You know, I'd done a few things, you know, very limited work as an actor. So nobody knew me from Adam. I was just a wannabe day player. But I was dedicated to the cause. And I, even that year, though I didn't think I could, I bought an electric car in 1970. <laughs> when I say electric car, I mean quite grand. We talk about a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn. You know, it, it had a top speed of like 25 miles an hour, a range of about 20 miles. But it got me around on a smoggy day or a rainy day, and I took the bus and I took my bike. And all the stuff that I did, including that electric car, was super cheap. It saved me a lot of money. And I went, I like this green stuff. It's helping with the other green stuff in my right pocket, which is called money. Now, let's just jump forward a little bit. You, I, I would say probably we, we did that great movie together, which I won't say, but people can go find it. So most of the people who listen to the show don't know that I have a former life, but I don't really talk about because I'm doing other things right now. But we did this movie together and you were still kind of on the up. You were on the upswing and then you got seen elsewhere. And yep. that seems like to have been the moment when you were then able to take this message to a broader audience. Totally. That was the change, Eric. 
What, so was what just, was that like? All of a sudden, you're Ed Begley on on St. Elsewhere and with acting with Denzel Washington, who wasn't yet fully Denzel Washington, but you were part of something really important and great. It was a great show, and you had this great. All of a sudden, had a, a great megaphone. How did you use that, and how, what kind of reaction did you get? St. Elsewhere was the job that changed my life, and Bruce Paltrow was the man that changed my life by giving me that role. Let me be clear: I did not try out for. The part of Dr. Victor Ehrlich, it was a one-line part. I read for the part of Dr. Peter White, who wound up being played by an actor called Terrence Knox. I didn't get the part I wanted, a regular part. They threw me a bone and gave me a one or two-line part <laughs> just because they wanted to be nice to me. I don't know why they did it, but they did. So I did that one or two-line part, and something happened. That magical thing happened between me and Bill Daniels, played Dr. Craig. Something happened. The writer started writing for this one or two-line character, said, we want you to be recurring. Did an episode or two of that. They went, we want, we want you to be a regular. And pretty soon I went from a one or two line part to being a regular. The part that I wanted that I didn't get winds up getting shot in the stomach <laughs> and in the genitals and is dead on the uh, like midway through the second or third season. So whatever I've wanted in my life, what fate has in store for me, what God has in store for me is always better than what I ever wanted. <laughs> so, okay. So now... You were, and oh, by the way, I was on an NBC show at the same time. And in your book, you talk about getting the little Sony Watchman as a gift. Right. I have one of those. Like, I got one too. We, Fantastic. We, I don't have it. Wasn't anymore. that a great gift? It was a great gift. A I little TV, folks, you could hold in your hand. They didn't have such things back then. It was 1980, uh, you know, 80, early 80s. What show were you on back then? Mama's Family. That's right, Mama's Family. So if you're on a show like that, you got a great Christmas gift and I got a little Sony Watchman. I couldn't believe it. A TV you could hold in your hand. Black and white, but it worked. It worked. A little antenna. It was bad. Amazing. I'm sure there's yeah. one somewhere in a museum. So probably. So now, so you're on sound elsewhere and, and you're now you've got this, you've got this opportunity. What did you do with it? I mean, how did you then take your kind of whatever environmental activism to the next level? It started with Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden. They were still married back then. This is 1986 or seven. And we went up and down California in a bus with a bunch of other actors, Michael J. Fox, Rob Lowe, Judd Nelson, all these wonderful actors and, you know, great people. And we went up and down California going to different colleges and what have you, trying to get people to register to vote, young people to register to vote and to vote for something called Prop 65. It was a tough on toxics initiative. So people would know it didn't enforce any rule about what you could use as an industry, what is toxic or not, what you could use in your factory or whatever, what you could manufacture. It just would let people know if there's something toxic in a product. If there's a toxicity to it, Prop 65 says, okay, you can sell it. We'll deal with that down the line one day, we hope. But for now, at least let people know there's something. There's benzene in this. So if you're pregnant or have some respiratory problem, maybe you don't want to be down here right now in the basement where the pump is pumping the solvent and there's benzene in the air. So stuff like that. It was a very common sense rule of passed by a two-thirds majority. And that was the beginning for me of activism. And what kind of reaction did you get as you're wandering or barnstorming with Rob Lowe? That must have been, it must have gotten some decent crowds, I'm guessing. They, yeah, they paid attention to them, which was our goal throughout. We knew we'd get a lot of people to, you know, to come up and be part of our events there at the colleges and elsewhere. We had that star power with us. But then what happened for me was I was probably the only person on that caravan that could spell and pronounce hexavalent chromium, let alone know what it was. <laughs> so I was, you know, I started talking about some of the toxicity and things that we encounter every day, some of the hazardous waste sites we all had to deal with, you know, Love Canal kinds of things and other places like that. And so in Casmalia, that toxic waste nightmare there. And in talking about it, you know, I certainly was asked to be on the board of, uh, you know, this organization or that, and my activism started really because of that caravan in 1987. I was active in what I did in my personal life, but I was never at a mic. Who would want to listen to me? You know, I'm Dr. Ehrlich from St. Elsewhere, not a real doctor. But after that, then I was, uh, I got active. I was kind of, it, I just fell into it really. But it matters. I mean, we are all fascinated by celebrity. And now, of course, folks are celebrities who haven't done anything at all. They're the so-called influencer or creators, as they call them now, are just folks who just sort of show up and say stuff and people follow them. What is it about our celebrity culture that allows you to tap into something that the think tanks 
and the policy people and yes, the foundations and the big nonprofits somehow haven't tapped into? And is there a way to kind of bring that together to more to create more power or outcomes? There's a bad aspect to it that can occur. It doesn't have to, but it can occur and it has occurred many times, which is someone just because they're famous decides that they're an expert in something scientific or otherwise, and they don't have any real expertise, let alone much knowledge about, let alone they didn't even read an article about it. Sometimes people who are sometimes ill-informed go out and because of the celebrity, get involved in things that is beyond their pay grade. I try to always, when I talked about anything, hexavalent chromium or anything, PCBs, you name it, talk to people with the letters PhD after their name <laughs> and peer-reviewed studies, Science Magazine, Nature Magazine, things where you know, peer-reviewed articles are published or what have you, deal with the best people. Now, having said that, everybody has a right as a citizen to their voice, but you have as a famous person a megaphone. Hello, hello, can anybody hear me? You have a microphone and a podium. You're standing in front of a large group of people just by the nature of your celebrity. So you want to be responsible. You don't want to go fire, scream fire in a, in a crowded theater. But also if the fire marshal comes up when you're about to do a song and dance, Please don't alarm people, but we have to row by row evacuate the theater. We do have some concern down the basement. So uh, cancel the song and dance. <laughs> and we're going to have to just tell people row by row. We're starting the early rows and just uh, nothing to worry about. Everybody goes slowly and orderly. So you, you go out there and what are you supposed to do then? Your song and dance? You can't. you got to tell people what you've learned from the fire marshal. The fire marshal are the guys with the PhD and the women with the PhD, the people from the U Union of Concerned Scientists, the people who are peer reviewed studies. In who published peer-reviewed studies in Science and Nature magazine. If you've heard the information from them about climate change or, you know, ozone depletion, whatever it is that's your thing back in the 80s and 90s or beyond, whatever you want, you're passionate about, air pollution in Los Angeles, I know a fair amount about it because I work with so many people who have a doctorate in these matters and they're very knowledgeable and I pick the best people, you know, people that are known for it for all the right reasons. So that's what you have to do. You have a right to say anything, celebrity or no, but you've got a big megaphone and a big microphone. Get your facts straight and go out there. And the one thing you shouldn't do is just, oh, shut up and do your own, do your song and dance. That's what we paid you for. You're a celebrity. Shut up and do your song and dance. You can't do that. You've heard. You've been informed by people who have knowledge. Now, speaking of, of great communications around this, you've, you've worked with some very, worked side by side with some very inspiring environmental environmentalists and leaders. And I'm thinking of Cesar Chavez or Dolores Huerta. Oh boy. Can the you tell me what is it about these folks, these leaders that have made them effective? The great thing about Cesar Chavez, who's no longer with us, and Dolores, who very much is, and is a, still a dear friend of mine, as Cesar was, they had worked in the fields themselves. They knew very well. And they were not like some other big union leaders you could name in the, from the past trying to line their own pockets and trying to, some of them understandably, trying to make their families very comfortable and what have you. Cesar never made much money in his whole life. Dolores is not a woman of wealth at all. Their wealth is the people that they have helped, millions of people that Cesar has helped by finally having, you know, latrines in the fields and drinking water in the fields and some shade and some breaks and something for the people that are putting food on our tables. The farmers are part of that too. The people who own the farms, of course, we, we thank them, too, for their wonderful work in starting a farm, but also the people that pick the food. They have a very important role. The people that do all that hard work in the fields, you want to have good conditions for them and you want to value them, too. So that's what they did. And Cesar had studied the works of Gandhi and Dr. King, what have you, and he did everything nonviolently. Many of his fasts were not to try to get them to stop eating grapes or eating lettuce, you know, no lechuga, no uvas. Everybody thought that's what it was about, and sometimes it was, but often it was about nonviolence. We can't retaliate. They're hitting us over the head, you know, killing some of our people on the on the picket line, but you can't retaliate with violence too. It was nonviolence that he preached. That's often why he did his fast, and it made it all the more powerful. What a what a legacy he leaves. And Dolores Huerta as well has been such to an this day, And she's been injured badly by her for expressing her beliefs. They've clubbed her, you know, police, Billy clubs and what have you. She had internal injuries and she's constantly struggled with staying healthy because of what's happened to her by just talking about what's fair and, and right for the workers out there in the fields. She's an amazing lady. 
I see you from time to time. Uh, it's rare that a year goes by that I don't spend some time with her. And I'm all the richer for it. She's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. We miss Cesar, but boy, are we happy to have Dolores around. Well, now we're going to take a very quick break. And we'll be back in the second half with Ed Begley Jr. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. If you're enjoying this episode, you may just be a rule breaker. Tune in to Break Fake Rules, a new limited series podcast with Glenn Gallich, CEO of the Stupsky Foundation. Hear from leaders in philanthropy, nonprofits, government, media, and more to learn about challenges they've overcome by breaking fake rules and which rules we should commit to breaking together. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Ed Begley Jr. Uh, this is, I have to tell you, so much fun and delightful to see you and to talk to you, Ed. Uh, thanks. Thanks again. I'm loving this. Right back at you, buddy. And thank you for bringing up Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. You know, I never met Dr. King. I never met Gandhi. I never met Mother Teresa. But he was a man of that ilk. And Dolores is a woman of that ilk. And when Cesar passed, 35,000 people turned out for that memorial. I had the sadness and the honor of carrying his coffin through the streets of Delano. So the work continues and his legacy continues. And bless you for remembering him. Well, you are, I mean, the passion for this work is obvious with you. And you are someone, one of those people who has really helped people understand how individual action matters. Now, by contrast, a lot of the foundation folks, and some of you are listening, uh, and, and nonprofit folks have focused on larger things like policy change and cap and trade and carbon taxes and other things. And some of them say, eh, personal responsibility is too granular. It's too singular. It's not going to work. How have you managed or how have you understood how to bring those two things together in which you get individuals to understand their own role in things, pushing towards some kind of larger policy shift or social shift? You know, I've always practiced personal responsibility, doing things in my own life that I knew would help, you know, end the pollution in, in the L.A. area. I've tried to take that action. That's important. But I gave people the wrong impression. I knew there was more to it than that, but I didn't voice that. Now I take care to voice it every time. That's just, you want a tripod, but you've only got one leg, things are going to fall over. The tripod is personal action is one thing. Corporate responsibility is the second. And the third is good legislation. We never would have gotten anything done with the pollution in L.A. if it was just me riding my bike and taking the bus and riding that little electric car. Nothing would have happened. But we had corporations that made cleaner power plants. We had laws that dictated it. The Clean Air Act signed by Richard Nixon is what happened, how we <laughs> clean up the air in L.A., combined with corporations making cleaner cars and cleaner power plants and all the other stuff, big and small, that has cleaned up the air since 1970. So it's those three things. You can't stand on just one leg without a crutch or two, or, you know, some help. So you need all three and it'll have to be of equal strength and weight or you're not going to get anything done. Personal action gives you the credibility to say, come on, corporation, do it. We want to buy electric cars. I've been driving them since 1970. Make some damn electric cars. And they do it. And there's laws, there's a mandate to make them do it. And there's additional laws to give them some funding from the Biden administration, for instance, now with charging infrastructure. You know, there's Ways they all three, all legs are connected in a tripod. You have to have all three. They got to be connected. And they are. That's how we've accomplished anything. A couple of years ago, you did this funny and wonderful, really charming show called Living with Ed, which kind of highlighted your efforts, among other things, to live a sustainable life and also try to live a sustainable uh, marriage. That's a show that was that went out to folks who are not your normal audience, I'm guessing, not environmentalists. It kind of right. crossed across what it. Did, what did you hear back from the so-called the real world, the flyover states, all those folks who are not necessarily exposed to this kind of way of thinking? Like, what kind of feedback did you get? What did you learn about what the world is interested in and how it connects to these kinds of messages? You know, I didn't want to do a reality show at all. My wife, you know, finally just wore me down. She wanted to do it. So I finally agreed to that. And then when I saw the sizzle rule before we ever shot a, a full show, I went, oh my God, this I really had potential because it was funny and charming. And most importantly, I could see that it was going to engage people. And sure enough, it happened. We did it two years on Home and Garden, one year on Planet Green. And I got so many emails from people and letters from people and people in the street would stop me and say, 
I bought one of those solar ovens. You know what I like about it? You put the pond on it, it doesn't tip over because that little gimbal mount on it. You can see the temperature right in the window. You go, holy Christ, this guy and this, some guy wants an autograph trying to make stuff up. I bought one of your solar ovens and I, I love it. You know, he was like, detail. You go, holy Christ, he actually did buy a solar oven. I got one of those rain barrels in front of my downspout. Ed, and I love how you put that screen and the mosquitoes can't get past that screen. And the little spigots down at the bottom so it flows out easy to my garden. Thank you. So millions of people watched that show and millions of people did something green. and. And the promise was, del I delivered on my promise, which is if you buy this cheap and easy stuff first, if you pick the low-hanging fruit first, rain barrel, solar oven, thermostat, you know, energy-saving thermostat, energy-efficient light bulbs, bike riding if weather and fitness permit, public transportation if it's available near you. All that stuff I promised would save money, of course, did save the money. So I got great response from all the supposed flyover states, you know, all the, the people that wouldn't be inclined to want to hear anything I would say. But they, I talked about fiscal responsibility. I correctly, rightly credited my wonderful Republican father for starting me on this path. You know, he was the son of Irish immigrants. He had lived through the Great Depression. You know, we turn off the lights, we turn off the water, we save tin, tin foil, we save string. You know, he really didn't use the word environmentalist, but he was one great man. That's, we need more of that now reaching across the aisle. Well, that raises a good point, which is, is the environmental movement falling short on this regard. You should think that anybody who cares, for example, if you're a farmer or a rancher, you know that the climate is changing because you are so connected to the earth. Right. And you right. know we have yeah. to deal with it and you have to understand that you have to make decisions in order to deal with it. So to the extent that this message isn't landing with a broad you know, swath of the population, where do you think that the environmental movement, it's a big word, and I know that you're associated with a lot of the organizations in it, can do better. We have to get our messaging better, though. I think it's pretty good. I, we certainly preached the uh, financial sense of doing a lot of this stuff. We talked about how, you know, for people who are people of belief, you know, how it's protecting God's creation. You know, we certainly try to reach people that way. You know, the, remembering the world that they grew up in when they were young, the way the rivers were and the lands were and the prairies were, and, you know, the coastline was. And so, we can reach people in that way, and we have to, because otherwise it, nothing's going to happen. We have a, a point in time that's occurring now where people don't believe things that were just a decade or so ago were accepted as fact. You'd say something about climate change or sea ice, you know, thickness. People go, okay, because I can't make it up to look at the sea ice in Greenland, but I, I trust somebody that does go there with a doctorate and a good study and some credible, you know, National Geographic funding behind it. or a good university, you go, well, I don't, people now go, I don't believe it, right. you know, whatever you say, but they went up there, people, responsible people to do studies. Does everybody have to travel to Greenland to see the, and measure themselves with a tape, the thickness <laughs> of the ice, how the people getting killed on the glaciers? And that's the challenge with the Greenland ice, I believe, is the fact that that most of the ice that's melting is on land. That's a really bad kind of ice to melt. The, the ice melting in the ocean is one thing, that's a, an ice cube melting inside of a glass. The one that's up on the rim of the glass that's melting, that's the bad one. That's the Greenland ice where it's on land because that's going to make the, the sea level rise happen more quickly because it's not in the water yet. It's on the land. So it's very alarming what's happening. Many people are taking it seriously, but unfortunately, nearly half the country is not because they're being fed misinformation. I don't know what to, you do about that if you don't pay attention to facts. If you don't believe facts, water boils at 100 degrees centigrade, 212 Fahrenheit. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, Gravity, it does. what the, a concept. I know. We're the third planet from the sun. No, we're not. We didn't do the moon landing. Yes, we did. You know, it's like when you get to that point, I'm not sure how you deal with it. And here we are. Well, speaking of these other kind of contrary voices, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered given your full-throated activism over the years? People that that are uh, frightened by new information, I guess. I guess that's the only way to put it. And it is. It's an inconvenient truth what's happening with climate. And really, I wish it were other, otherwise. It'd be great to just ride around on private jets and drive an SUV. I imagine that'd be a pretty cushy life, but I don't need it, whatever the case. But it, it's just, it's unfortunate. I, we have to, 
find some way to get through to people. You'd think now with all the, we've always had wildfires, but the the regularity of wildfires, the intensity of wildfires is different. Anybody with any degree or any knowledge of it will tell you that's the case. Like you said earlier, the farmers know what's really happening with wildfires and with precipitation and with temperature and all those things. So they have to, they have to deal with it. So you have so many people that don't believe things because of another, some other very oddball agenda where facts don't matter. Facts must matter. It's the scientific method is what enables us to know just about anything about our bodies and the heavens and the earth and the ocean and the things that we all depend on. There's a web of life that we all depend on to survive. It is our survival. You know, the earth is going to be just fine. We got to save the earth. We don't have to save the earth. It's going to be just fine. You know, but we have to save ourselves. And there's a web of life. And how many rivets, as Air, Paul Ehrlich said wisely, how many rivets can you lose from an airplane before it ceases to fly? I would always guess it would be like 20 some odd, what I used to say in my speeches. Now we know it's only four. Huh. I mean, it yes, didn't go, right. the plane didn't go down, but it could have easily with those four bolts. I think they're only four, whatever they're at, six bolts. And we are losing those rivets from an airplane. They are the plant and animal species that we are losing every day. The coral reefs, you know, the different, the many species that we lose continuously. We need them all. You can, any intelligent tinkerer saved all the pieces. And we're not saving the pieces we're losing. So on the flip side, back in the day when I, when I was at Center for a New American Dream and you, we ran into each other, we were talking about consuming responsibly. We were talking about this new, in, this new invention called compact fluorescent lights. We were talking right. about like crazy new things like a way of certifying whether a building was actually environmentally sustainable. Right. Now, right. all that stuff has come and it's here and it's happening. A, could you have... Did you in your wildest dreams think that so many of the things that you were preaching not that long ago, say 15 years ago, would be daily kind of part of regular life? And where do you see this work going in the future? You know, there's constant celebration with all that we've accomplished with those things you just cited, with the more energy efficient lighting and the knowledge about consumerism, how it affects different things, and so much good has happened. Congratulations. You just made a 50-yard gain, but hold on, I'm sorry, I'm not done yet. Move back 55 yards because we now have something, a certain cable network I will not name that says things regularly that aren't so or are not verified or put in any way that you want. You know, we have people getting misinformation from media and it makes it hard to get people motivated when they believe things that are not true. As we close out, what gives you hope for the future? What gets you up in the morning and picking your uh, organic garden in the front of the house and and so on? What what gets you out of bed and what what makes you think that we're on the right track or that we can be? The knowledge that we clean up there in L.A. for the most part, the knowledge that Cuyahoga River does not catch fire, the knowledge that the Hudson River has been cleaned up to a large extent from the horrible pollution in the 60s and 70s, that knowledge, and also knowing that we can you know, we've come so far and we can go even further. The things that we did to clean up there in L.A. can be used to combat climate change. I know there's a lot of responsibility with what we have to do, but I get up in the morning buoyed by what we have done, and I think we can do more. There's so much left. People like Jane Goodall, look what she's doing with her Roots and Shoots program. She's getting out there, going around the world, talking to young people and people of every age. She gives me hope. Right there, I'll just stop with Jane Goodall. No, I can't stop with Jane Goodall. I got to remember Urute Galdikas, too, working with the orangutans there in Borneo, and Jane working with the chimpanzees and all these wonderful people who I so revere. And Dolores Huerta is still doing it. These women, Vandana Shiva, these great women who are out there carrying the message of sustainability, that gives me hope. Well, actually, we had a, a guest on recently named uh, Anat Shankar Osorio, who's a great message. I call her the Frank Luntz of the left. And she calls this approach that you just articulated, we did, we can, we will. So we did something, perfect. it proves that we can do it and we will do it some more. And creating this notion of inevitability of the future, of a better future, is something that can inspire people and drive them forward. And I can think of nobody who's a greater proponent of that and just a living embodiment of a great career and a life devoted to something, to making life's, uh, life better for others than you. Ed, and I just deeply appreciate your 
work and who you are and your just joyful exuberance. And I'm very, very grateful. Oh, and your book, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It, which is a terrific memoir of a fabulous life that you're you're forging forward and uh, and a wonderful way to communicate that message as well about how to live and what you've learned. So thank you. And laughter is a great elixir, I find. It's a great way to to make yourself feel better. And so we can't just laugh and not take any action, but take the action, but make sure you have a good laugh or two as well. And the book is filled with uh, laughs. So enjoy. Well, thank you again, Ed Begley Jr. Thank you so much, Eric. And we're back. There it is. We're famous. That's it. That's all 15 minutes. That's, That's it. We it. got to listen to Ed Begley Jr. It's great. It's great. So I listened to Ed's book and he re he narrates his book, which is really fun and entertaining and an incredible ride through Hollywood in the 70s, 80s, 90s and and now. And I just occurs to me that I am now two degrees of separation from and he we didn't talk about this in our conversation, but Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson <laughs> and get this one day he hangs out in Chatsworth with this weird bunch of folks. Turns out the Manson fan. Oh, my God. <laughs> so <laughs> this is not I don't take any pride in these degrees of separation, but all this is to say that Ed has been around. He's seen a lot of stuff and he has derived from all of these experiences a deep connection with the environment, with people, yeah. with justice and with using his platform to try and make a difference. And I salute him for that. And as you can tell, he's full of ideas. He's really highly engaged, super duper fun guy. Well, and said a bunch of important stuff to you, including let's celebrate our successes because Ed gets started. And by the way, Ed's IMDb, go check it out. It's hundreds. <laughs> it's hundreds of things. And we're going to have to do, there's so many different little avenues we got to go down. We're going to have to talk about what television is, what it meant to have a major, you know, a top 40 ranked TV show for six or eight years. But, um, but he, Ed talks about success, you know, let's talk about where we've come from and what the successes we've seen. And, you know, I got started doing this work in the seventies in Los Angeles and talked about, you know, watching rivers catch fire. That was part of my awakening, but, but I have to say, Eric, okay, so let's do this. Cause, cause we'll talk about the substantive part of this in Ed's long career in environmental activism, but you got to famously say to Ed, we go way back. And all of a sudden, it's two showbiz dudes talking about <laughs> being in the business back in the day. So I've always wondered, so how does that work? You know, like, you're, <laughs> what do you mean, how does it work? he's like, this is my show. And then you're like, well, this is my show. You're on Mama's Family. He's on St. Elsewhere. So what's happening? Are people like rubbing shoulders in the back lot? You're like in your little celebrity trailers. <laughs> you're like, hey, come over, come over for hors d'oeuvres, you know, like. How do you even develop friendships and relationships in what I think is one of the most cutthroat, hardcore industries in the history of you know the world, which is the L.A. entertainment scene? So how does that happen? How do you become friends with somebody? I think that's not true. I think that the mob is probably more cutthroat. That's my feeling. <laughs> okay. Second only to the mob. <laughs> I'll take it. That's great. The mob is definitely more that's cutthroat. Right. <laughs> Sounds about right. Right. You, right. You, oh, you just try to sabotage each other's audition. You don't try to actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, bury them in cement galoshes. Right. You have probably trench warfare in Europe circa 1917, 15, 16. <laughs> you've got the mob, and then you've got the Los Angeles okay. entertainment scene. Well, really I don't ones. know. You just sort of run into folks, and there are these gatherings of people who are, we were on we were on the same network. So NBC would throw these gatherings and you'd get together and you'd see people and I don't know, you play in whatever quasi, you play in like D-list celebrity golf tournaments and tennis <laughs> tournaments and things like that. I once was in a paddle ball tournament. I mean, that's, you know, how it went. Wow. Anyway, you kind wow. of run into people and that's, and I knew Ed from the movie and then we would run into each other. Gotcha. So you'd see each other around. So you're on TV, Ed is on TV. We also have to talk about this because I think this is actually a really important part of his journey as an activist that we kind of didn't get into too much. But what did it mean to be on a major network television station on a regular show in the 80s? And let's remember, while we've dated ourselves successfully in terms of our participation on this podcast, we also know we've got a lot of people now that listen to this that actually don't know what that was, <laughs> you know, to, to have three options. 
and 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 have tens of millions of people every night gathering to one television screen and and to to be touching anything that was part of the popular consciousness in that way was life-changing as it was for Ed. And he talked about that when he got the opportunity to be on St. Elsewhere. So level set around that, because again, you're, this is part of our, you know, we're going to shoot this one into the, into the universe. So it's, <laughs> it'll permanently archive this recollection of what it was to be, you know, on a major network television show in the United States in, in the eighties, in the nineties, in the seventies, that that's a seminal period of time, you know, and, 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 and it's gone. It's, we're not going to have it it's back. So, now, so what yeah. was, what was that? Well, it, yeah, what was in that the like? day, I mean, I was on a middling show. It got middling ratings. We were 15. Mama's family. We were 15th to 25th or whatever for the, for most of the time. And that meant that 25 million people were watching you every Saturday night. I mean, and this is what I want to say. This what you just said is I was on a middling show. We were what we were 50 to 25. That's like saying, yeah, I was on the bench in a professional baseball team, right? Like, like you're one of you're one of the top whatever X in the world of people, right? So yeah, you're called you're saying you're at a middling show, but you're one of a few thousand, a few hundred people that are in that spot while there are millions of people watching you. I used to say that I felt like I was a bat boy on the 1927 Yankees show that I was on had a lot of incredibly great comedians and stars and such. And I was just a schmo who came on and said a word or two every couple of days. But the idea was that the show was seen by 20, 30, some odd million people. And we were kind of meh. We were, you know, Mm. in the middle of the pack. So television was a completely different experience. And I think this is what you're getting at because I'm really getting tired of talking about my acting career is that you had a platform <laughs> and a place to use that platform. And that's what Ed did. And as Ed had mentioned, you like how I segued out of that? I thought that was very clever. Yeah, as Ed, nice <laughs> move. As Ed had mentioned, that even when he was just a schmo himself, you know, with a bunch of room 222 guest spots uh, in his back pocket, he was an advocate for the environment. He had had an electric car. He was talking about this stuff. And that was who he was. And then as his celebrity increased, the opportunity he had to tell that story increased. And one more thing that he talks about, and I think this is really important, he actually does does his homework. He knows what he's talking about, and he won't advocate for something that isn't true. There was a piece in the New York Times today, this is early February that we're having this conversation, in which... Uh, some actor, actually not a famous actor, had you know, repeated some rumor they had seen on social media about the storms in California that got uh. millions of whatever repeats or reposts or that kind of thing. And it became considered scientific evidence. And mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. wherever yeah. the, the various meteorological people had to back that off. And so so people can just say any old thing. And it begins to obtain. And that's the real challenge right now of who do you listen to and what kind of information do you take? And uh, I know you're a great big fan of disinformation, Kirk. So yet another (laughs) challenge for us to contend with. Well, and this speaks to the power of celebrity, right? That folks like Ed willing to do their homework, pull the right information and resources together can really help address some of this. And and I loved his reference to having an early electric car. And, and of course he's saying all the right things. He saved money having an electric car and that's home in my household. You know, I've got a 14 year old watching stuff on TikTok who's asking me, well, wait, aren't electric cars worse to the environment than gas cars? And that's because why? Disinformation. Because of what they're seeing, <laughs> what they're seeing on social media. But so here's the thing that you didn't get into so much with that, but this is why I wanted to draw the, the, the this thread back to the 20, 25 million people. You're there. You've got this tremendous platform. It's being supported by uh, advertising dollars stepping out on these issues at a time when the Vietnam War was raging was not easy. This was risky. And and I think this is something that Ed kind of doesn't get enough credit for. And neither does Jane and neither does Tom or Michael or Rob or Judd, those folks that were with him on the bus when he got so animated about Prop 65. There was real economic peril for them to be leveraging their platforms to do this. And we think about it as so much like part of the currency now for celebrity. In fact, it's almost, you have to have some cause that you're aligned with. Like they, these folks actually proved how beneficial and powerful that is. But back in this day, back at this time, even with the rivers burning, it was not obvious that people were going to say, oh yeah, let's do this Earth Day thing. And then I loved how Ed was like, let's turn it into the other 364 days of the year. What are you going to do? We're going to clean the air. We're going to clean the water. So I love that that reflection, but I almost, I want to pause for a moment and just like 
acknowledge and honor Ed and and thank you for bringing him here so we can hear from him what he did. And and then what does he do with that? He works with Cesar, Cesar Chavez and all those other leaders that you were mentioning. So that piece where this was not a slam dunk, like the, you wouldn't expect necessarily that everybody was going to embrace you for doing this work. To me, I think that's one part of the story around celebrity that's kind of gotten lost that actually this was really risky that what Ed was doing. It was, it was good. It was right. We needed it, but it wasn't without its own risks for him personally. And for the record, the Vietnam War ended in the early 70s, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, yeah, but I'm saying this is in the shadow of the okay, Vietnam that's, War, right? That's it's fair. in the shadow of that kind of, yes. But yeah, I exactly. think that the, if if you read Ed's book or if you just talk to him, I, I think that his, he didn't care that, right. like that didn't matter to him. It wasn't even the point. The point is the truth. The truth is that A, we're doing all sorts of damage to the environment and B, that there's something that we can do about it. And I loved his idea, his his notion of this three-legged stool, which is individual responsibility, corporate mm. responsibility, and good legislation. If you take those three mm. things and put them together, you can make a big difference. And as you say, he does talk about the victories. And I even referenced Anat, the conversation that we had Anat very recently, yes. which is, we did, we can, and we will. And if you continue to tell that story, you can build a sense of inevitability and you can take away some of this kind of doom doominess that many people yes. are feeling. Now, it's true. All sorts of things are happening and the melting ice sheets and all these, they are happening. It is true. And so you have to hold two things at one time, which is that we are experiencing challenges, but that we have also come a long way. It is true that the air in Los Angeles, like you can see the hills most days. Yeah. And back in the 80s when yeah. I lived there, if you saw the hill, it was like, like what is that thing over there? Right. <laughs> and that's just air quality. But there are so many other yeah. things. And this notion yeah. of the fact that I have an electric car that was cheaper than the gas car. You know, it's yeah. th Those right. are huge, huge benefits. And that I have solar right. panels on my house that will power that car forevermore is something yeah. that I think we all knew was possible once but it it was it never felt like it was it was terribly available to us and so things are changing and those are small things but you put them all together and we actually can make a difference another very important point that Ed mentioned was basically that it's not the nature that's the big problem it's the humans in it are going to we're the ones in in peril i had an old right, friend who used to right. say nature bats last I think that's exactly true. I mean, it'll be a different nature, but it'll still be nature and the people will be gone and that'll be that. Have a nice day. So yeah. like we yeah. have a responsibility to ourselves in order yeah. to, to, to turn this around and to make the future one that we want to live in or that we want our kids or our kids' kids to live in. And that's the challenge, but it is achievable. And I think that's his very kind of funny and uh, homespun in many ways message is that we did, we can, we will. But it's it's the natural communicator in him, right? And this is the thing about that genius celebrity, that actor, that I, I he knows how to connect in a really persuasive way. And so, right from the very beginning, he starts talking about his electric vehicle, and he's saving money, right? You know, he's talking. I, I loved his thing about you know one of our biggest challenges is uh, working with people that are frightened by information, and we're literally in a world where people will point to a pot of boiling water and say water doesn't boil, right. you know, and and. It's, <laughs> Like, like that's what it means to not say science is real. It's like you're, you're pointing at the boiling water and say, actually, that's not true. That's not happening, even though it's right in front of you. But what does he do with that? He's, he doesn't descend into a fit of despair. He doesn't descend into the negativity. He actually focuses on the positivity. And then as a celebrity, he can also use his platform and just his persona to do things like ride his bike to the Oscars, take public transit to the Oscars, and just kind of like poke a little bit on our public perception of what normal is or what normal could be and saying, you know, actually, I'm going to redo my house. I'm in, I'm in, in Southern California. We're going to redo our lawn. So it uses no water or, or less water than it would be otherwise. Cause we can be, you know, we could actually not just talk about this, but we can walk this talk. And this is what Ed has been doing since the seventies. Yeah, it's right. And I used to work for an organization called the center for a new American dream, which is sadly no more, whose motto was more mm. fun, less stuff. And I used to spend a lot of time talking to reporters kind of jokingly and a little self-deprecatingly telling them that, hey, look, we're not the people who are telling you to knit sweaters out of old mop heads. We're just telling you mm -hmm. that by changing the way you consume, you can improve your quality of life and protect the environment. And so that message was so highly aligned with what Ed is talking about. And, you know, 15 or 20 years later, so many of the things that we had been talking about have come to pass.
and that <laughs> the, the world has changed and how we consume has changed and how we think about consumption has changed. Not to say that there are not still things to do. We're not, I'm not naive, but we are capable of this. And that's one of the most important things that Ed communicates so well, so in such a lively way and a positive kind of fun way. He's even funnier. He was entertaining in our conversation. He is a flat yeah. out laugh riot uh, when he's not trying to help you understand about the environment. So he, Ed gives us hope. He gives us optimism. He gives us a very kind of down to earth way to think about this stuff. It's very authentic. It's grounded in the evidence. It's all the stuff that we care and love about. And that sort of irony, that sort of turn of wit that he brings like to the temple of a tranquility and step on it. <laughs> this is his memoir aptly named, you know, so that sort of ironic self-reflection of what do we do and how this is going. It was, I have to say, man, Eric, that was great. And I had no idea. See, this is the problem of you hanging around with me. I just had no idea, like, you know, what incredible people are in your you life. Never I'm like, you know, I'm like, you're... You didn't say, are you old friends with Ed Begley Jr.? <laughs> if you had said, I would have said yes. It never came up. And that was awesome. And he was like, you know, it was really nice to hear from you, Eric. And, and I will say too, you know, his comment around being genuinely supportive of and moved by the work that you've done with your career since you left acting. It's a, it's, that's a fair thing he's had to say. And it was really cool to hear him say it was that. nice of him. Because it's, this is, this is what we need yeah. to do. We need to acknowledge and, and, and respect each other for this hard work we're doing because it, it's too often it's unseen, too often it's un invisible to others. And so that was really My cool. mother still thinks I've made a horrible mistake, but since she doesn't listen to the <laughs> podcast, uh, I, I, I feel safe in saying this. <laughs> Well, well, all due respect to Eric's mother. I think you've made some good life choices, Eric. And one of them was bringing Ed Begley Jr. on to let's hear it. Ed, man, thank you for everything you've done. That was so exciting to hear. And again, you're we are all in the glow of your celebrity. And thank you for hanging out with us. Eric, that was really awesome. Well, yeah, Ed, one of the most generous, gracious, kind, loving, lovely people you will ever have the pleasure of meeting. What you heard there is what you get. He is a great, great guy. Thank you, Ed. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time on Let's Hear It. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank our indefatigable producer, Harper Brown, John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music, our sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> okay, everybody. Until next time.